Hi, Chris. Thanks, thanks very much for joining us. Um, quite a few new products in the offing for Mizuno. Just been launched or just about to launch. So I thought we'd catch up with yourself and maybe maybe get some of the insights and technical points that we might have missed along the way. Uh, and maybe, maybe see if you've learned anything about some of these new products as we've been going. Um, I'd like to start with the ball, if that's okay, because I know in the States, the ball's already been out a while. Yeah, it's a different one to start with. You know, we, we love starting with irons with everything we do, but it's fun to start somewhere else. And you're right, depending on where you are in the world, this ball is either brand new to you or it's it's just getting introduced to you coming up soon. But man, the, the new ball is a super exciting launch for us because we've done a lot of upgrades to our previous one. And honestly, this is almost unrecognizable compared to the previous. Can we can we talk about the previous one a little bit as well? Because yes. well, that was, was it fair to say that was the first really big delve into the ball market for, for Mizuno in the US? Yeah, it, not just the first. It, I mean, it was the first ever. So the how we got there was a little bit where Japan had been working on a ball. That we've got some really incredible technologies and incredible um, team of researchers in the overseas that do a lot of uh, really in-depth aerospace studies and a lot of stuff around uh, the aerodynamics, dimple pattern, stuff like that around the ball. And they've been making stuff, some really good product for the last number of years. It hasn't come to the U.S. just because we don't, hadn't felt like we had the right ball for our market yet, just in terms of uh, the, the price point where Mizuno is the brand, you know, kind of the who we speak to. And then uh, with the previous generation of RB2 and RB2 RX, that was the first one that we did launch because it had some really great performance characteristics to it. So talk to me a little bit about that ball and talk to me about what was good about it and then maybe on in retrospect what you might have done differently. Yeah, that ball was fun because what it did great is a lot of things that Mizuno is known for. Feel, control, you know, the, the really aspects that you think of when you think of Mizuno, when you think of like MP or Mizuno Pro, the, the it was an extremely soft feeling golf ball and extremely controllable in that it actually spun a little bit more than and when we look at the kind of the world of golf balls, it was a more spinny golf ball. A lot of that based around control with irons and control for coming into greens, control with wedges. So it was a little bit of a different animal compared to some other balls in the market, but it honestly spoke a lot to Mizuno in terms of what it did. And because of some of those things, right? So the, the, some of the feedback we got, some people loved it because it felt really soft and it checks up really kind of really crazy kind of spin short game stuff. But then we did, we did also get some feedback on durability and uh, we did get some feedback on some of the real stronger, younger guys that may be a bit too spinny off the driver. You know, it, it's funny with, with any sort of engineering, any sort of development, there's always a give and take, you know, to, to make one thing better, something suffers in, in, at, any, uh, at any lever you pull. We put so much into the feel and soft and spin you know, kind of bucket that I would say that the durability wasn't quite up to par with, you know, what some players are used to seeing, especially when you get into the higher swing speeds. That's where you know, like a full wedge shot from a really fast swing speed player was where the previous RB2 or RB2 or X, I'd say, tended to struggle a little bit. The The cover itself shredded a little bit easier than I'd say than maybe we liked. And that's because we put so much emphasis on the feel of it and the and just the softness of, of, of that cover. So the, the headline on the new ball is it's our most tested tour performance ball ever. So 
the, the reality to that is this the previous bulls in the market three years is that right the previous RB? yeah that's right yeah which is a, a year longer than we'd first scheduled correct so it's supposed to be a two-year so talk to me about that extra year where, where did that extra year come from you know, that extra year anytime you have extra time on the clock from the development side you can use that to improve anything that you're working on and honestly the the biggest thing and the biggest feedback i'd say truly maybe one of the only negatives of the previous ball was that durability and how that cover held up um you know i'd say for a certain player perhaps it spun too much but for a lot of players it did something different than another ball in the market we used that extra year and that extra time on the clock to make sure we got everything right and I, I, it's not even to say that we didn't get any everything right the previous time but i felt like we had an opportunity to really keep a great solid Mizuno feel but if we could make it you know last a little bit longer and give a little bit more consistency and a little bit more uh, durability then we'd really have a home run with it and that's really what the, that extra rounds of prototyping and I say rounds because it wasn't just one or two rounds we did I'd say more testing than we've ever done on any product in terms of rounds of iterations of prototypes Okay, so let's talk about the resources we're doing at Half a Golf Ball because I think that's, that's a little bit of an unknown. So we've, yeah. we've, we've got the wind tunnel team. We've literally got the aerodynamics team and they are based at Euro in Japan. You and, I, you and I have been there. And those guys predominantly were working on baseballs, I think, weren't they? We, we, we've been there and we've seen the baseballs in the wind tunnel before. And that's literally what they got those guys do full time, correct? Yeah, the, the aerodynamics and that the study within the wind tunnel it's really a fascinating thing, and it takes such a, I guess, a unique skill set to understand how to control the aerodynamics of something in, in you know, a spinning ball flight in motion. Uh, you're right, they work on a number of different sports, and the ability to then take on the golf project, and I'd say the spin rates of a golf ball are substantially higher than the spin rates of a lot of other, in a lot of other sports. The ball speeds are higher. Ball speeds are higher, spin rates are higher, means that the aerodynamics uh, are going to be a little bit different when you get into those higher spin rates and higher speeds. So understanding how they're going to react within that wind tunnel is really an incredible thing. And a ball flight's really unique, too, with a golf ball in terms of the initial launch and just the overall duration of that flight. What the ball does and what the spin rate does at different areas of that, because that you get maximum spin right off the face, and then it's that spin is decaying, it's diminishing everywhere from there. So you you know a big thing on golf is focusing on landing angle. We look at launch angle and landing angle. I'd say it may be the only sport where we look at basically this angle and that angle. Usually it's just one or the other. So understanding how the characteristics of that dimple are going to perform at the start and at the end of the flight, it takes a really unique skill set. And really a unique set of tools like our wind tunnel over in Euro to be able to measure that accurately. So what Mizuno brings to the table when it comes to golf ball is that the biggest part of it is that um, that experience of working with aerodynamics and the wind tunnel and the engineers in Japan. But we had that last time as well. So what's been added this time is a team in the States. So part of the, the R&D, part of the testing process, is you've actually put a ball team together in the US this time as well. Yeah, we have a ball team here, and we actually, it's interesting when you look at, I don't want to say the product direction but or the product market, but some of the things that the U.S. and I'd say the Western world are really focusing on are younger, elite, like faster players, where the Japan market and the Japan industry, just in terms of golf in general, it's, it's an older player sport. 
So I'd say the ball speed requirements and the spin requirements from a, a test for a ball that was predominantly developed for the Japanese market would tend to require higher spin rates and, you know, have less, I'd just call it concerns about durability because you're not getting those really extreme ball speeds and head speeds. When you start looking at golf as a global picture and, and with Mizuno's approach, really looking at the younger players, like our next generation of golfers, you're starting to see more speed, more spin, just you know, more aggressive athletes playing. So I'd say the addition of just kind of a holistic worldview of who's going to play this and what Mizuno wants golf to be in the future has led to us having different performance requirements within the ball. So with that, you know, we still test on our wind, wind tunnel at multiple head speeds, at multiple spin rates. But, you know, I think we raise the level of what are the, the maximums there to make sure that this is performing for a player with the, the fastest swing speed as well as working still for those players with slightly slower. And then the other, the other thing that came to mind when I was looking at your original presentations is you actually went through 99 prototypes of golf ball in that end. Yeah, it, it's one of those things that when you start adding it up and you start looking at how many iterations you've been through, it's pretty incredible because each one is a unique design. And it's it's not as simple as just say, okay, give us 99 to try. Each one is an iterative advancement from the previous one. So I'll say we looked at ones where we were looking at, you know, generation one to generation two or prototype one to prototype two had different cover durabilities. Some of them had different cover hardnesses, some of them different compressions, slightly different dimple patterns, just a whole lot of different things, even down to like the thicknesses of individual layers. We were controlling each one of those, and it's important to do it in an iterative step and actually take the time to have all those extra prototypes, because if you develop the next prototype has, you know, a, a larger core and a thinner cover and the dimples change, you kind of don't know exactly where to contribute each you know change in performance to so we were really took our time and that's where like having a little bit of extra time and development allowed us to take the proper steps to control every little instance and every little bit of the performance first thing that catches your eye on this ball is the dimple mm -hmm. and most people we put it out to for testing the first thing they see is the dimple what, what can you tell me about that when you look at the world of dimples and you look at even our previous RB2 or an RB2 rig, they had significantly more dimples. Um, I'd say a lot of that is, again, looking at those higher swing speeds, I think led to this fewer dimples as we're looking at how much lift and drag is, is created from the ball flight and from the spin rate. You got to make sure that the actual size of the dimple and the number of dimples correlate to the spin levels you're trying to, uh, trying to obtain. And the actual dimple themselves is what's one of the cool things is it's slightly asymmetrical. What I mean is, you know, a typical dimple will be, you know, perfectly uniform from any, any direction. This one actually has slightly, the bottoms of the dimples are slightly pulled off center and then randomized throughout the head. I, random's not really, really the right word because it's, it's mathematically randomized in terms of creating, making sure you're getting optimal flow and optimal performance from those dimples. Even though there are fewer of them, you get plenty of lift, but it's not going to climb too high. So that's, that's very hard for a, a non-engineer like me to get my, my head round. When you say <laughs> metrical, it, it makes me feel like it wouldn't be uniform. Can you can you explain that for me? Yeah. So you know, obviously, a a, 
a, a sphere is a set shape. Like, you know, a ball is a set shape. It's 360 degrees in all, in all directions. You know, it's that perfect sphere. So even though an individual dimple might not be perfectly uniform, when you look at the orientation of each of those dimples in relation to each other over that given, you know, enclosed surface, then they're optimized so that for every one that's offset in one direction, there's another offset in another direction. So there, so even though it, I, you know, I say asymmetrical off-center things that that almost appear, if you just look, take them out of context, it just sounds random and you know, like you know, chaotic. There's science to this chaos. There's science to how they're put together. So a simpleton like myself, they actually make the ball look slightly different as well. So it's got a slightly, yeah. I don't know, we've had the word precise has come back. Some of the feedback is they feel like the ball looks almost like crisper or like it's got almost like a cleaner outline to it. Is that it's like a trick of the light? Well, it's funny. It's, a, it's, it's funny what people look at and what people take from a golf ball design. I'd say the precision, the look of the precision comes a little bit from the actual, the geometry of the dimples themselves, that look of crispness. I'd say because we have fewer dimples and because those dimples are those, that asymmetrical shape, each one has to be really, really precise in terms of its geometry. And what that means is that the actual shoulders of those dimples are tighter than the previous ones. There's not as much round on them. So that tighter shoulder means, makes a crisper look. It makes it look a little bit more engineered, a little bit more precise. But that's because, you know, we're dealing with such, you know, microscopic changes in different parts of the dimple that all equates to big numbers in terms of spin rates, distance, and lift and drag coefficients and stuff like that that you're putting together. I'd say crisper is a better term because it is more precise and the level of control over every dimple, it's imperative to make sure you're getting the proper performance. And that talks to me a little bit. So both balls together are going to be slightly higher launching and less spinny than the prick, the two they replace. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. I'd say, if anything, the the previous RB2R and RB2RX, while one was a spinny and one was a less spinny version, they both, I'd say, lived on the spinnier side of the golf ball world. These live a little bit more in the feet of that world in terms of it's easier to to get those lower spin rates, particularly on drivers and those more penetrating ball flights with these than the previous version. So yeah, they both launch really nice, but the actual maximum spin rates are definitely dialed back from the previous. There's certain bits of data that we can't show, um, but both balls are less spinny than both other balls from last time. Right. And that that's an interesting thing where, you know, I'd say a Fitters actually leaned a little bit on RB Tour and RB Tour X, the previous ones, if they knew a player needed more spin. I'd say that was almost making a correction with the ball as opposed to people, you know, kind of landing on this ball. Where this is one that that's a little bit more in terms of what people are used to, and it's less a flight correction golf ball. And that allows us, because it's not that flight correction ball, it allows it to be more, I'd say, optimized for more players. So I think you've quite you've been quoted before saying low spin and lower spin. Yeah, I, and I think that's a very fair way to put it. Is while the previous one, previous version of these golf balls were we what we call the low spin and a higher spin, I'd call these a low spin and a lower spin. Now the difference between the two balls, construction's the same, manufacturing's the same, materials the same. Both urethane cover, both two hundred seventy two dimples. 
They're both three layers. Mm-hmm. So the main difference would be in the compression. Would it be right there? That's absolutely right. That's the biggest difference between these two golf balls is the compression. The RV Tour X is going to feature a little bit higher compression. Higher compression is going to tend to give you a little bit more of a, I'd call it a mid, mid-high trajectory. So it's going to launch a little bit higher and it's going to spin a little bit more. The lower compression of the RV Tour, it's going to be a little bit more of a penetrating ball flight with touch less spin. Interestingly, and we've been picked up by a few people, I mean, we'll ask Ian Fraser from TXG when he hops on the call. Um, when they did their test, they actually the results were a little bit flipped the other way around. So there was a question of did they get, you know, did, were the balls wrong? Was that just a, an abnormal reaction? What was, what's your explanation to that? You know, I'd say that it's a little bit, you know, when you're talking balls that live both on the, I'd call it low and lower spin, you know, that you, it brings in a little bit of the human element in the fitting world as well in terms of what's the aver, average, like, standard deviation of a shot and, and what's that spin rate going to be. So we're talking more fine-tuning here as opposed to, like I mentioned about the previous ball, being a little bit more of a correcting ball where you could really make large jumps in spin rate. These are going to be close just because they're designed to be close, because they're designed to do, you know, subtle things different. So close enough that... Every now and then you might get an odd result like Ian and the TFC boys had. Overall, we are seeing people conform into the, the theory, which is that the, that the lower spin ball being the, the non-X, the standard, and the X lightning will spin. Well, it really, and especially because the, the main lever that was pulled between the Tour and the Tour X was the compression lever. The compression, when you get a higher compression, that's going to lead to a higher ball flight and higher spin. So you will see that. That's the predominant thing between these two is lower, lower launch, lower spin with the tour, higher launch, higher spin with the tour X. We've got our own internal compression measurements, but again, they don't mean a huge amount when you compare to other people's because it'll be another one of those things where everyone measures slightly differently, correct? Mm-hmm. All we know is where they stand relative to other products. Uh, both balls significantly lower compression than what they're replacing. Yeah, and, and that makes sense, as I talked about the previous balls being very high spin. Typically, a higher compression equals higher spin. So because the previous RB2 and RB2RX lived in the high compression world, as you bring that compression down, you're naturally going to lower spin. On top of that, we did other changes to the actual, you know, the, the internal layers, as well as the dimple patterns going to help lower that spin as well. Then... So you've talked about the axial flow dimple. We've talked about the 272 dimples, so much reduced. So it's a weird one, isn't it? Because actually the consequence and the results of this is it's going to perform a lot more like if you've got a very well-known tour ball at the moment, a proven tour ball, the performance of these is not going to be completely dissimilar to that, right? These are going to live in a very similar world, launch characteristics, spin characteristics, ball speed characteristics. Yet the mix of things to produce that is slightly different. So again, some of those mm-hmm. one balls would be what three twenty, three thirty dimples, right? Absolutely, yeah, and and varying uh, number of layers and stuff like that. I'll say what what makes this ball still recognizably Mizuno is the feel that you're going to get from it. You know, while that was still something that we very much wanted to make sure you got, it still has that soft feel. It still has that control, but it's got spin rates and launch performance and you know, ball flight. I'd say trajectories a little bit more in line with the mass of the market. Yeah, I've got I've got a record here that the actual the cover softness is actually significantly 
less than some of those other leading balls as well. Yeah, and, and that's just it. It's funny how people think they know golf balls because of what they've just been told or what they've heard or something like that. If you look at some of the leading balls on the market, while people will say, oh, they're so soft, when you actually start to compare them in the world of golf balls, a lot of the leaders aren't nearly as soft as you think they are. So that's where it's really interesting. Now that we have a similar level of performance in terms of, you know, ball speed, launch angle, spin rates, and, care, you know, carry flight trajectories, then you can really start looking at those other things that you might prefer one or the other. Because the, the feel difference between the RB Tour and the RB Tour X and our competitors, it's noticeable. Okay, so Mizuno and I have this, this, this tall ball that performs up there against anything. And we've had a few, few reviews coming in now. They've all, they've all been very positive. I think the, the, the nice thing about it is how consistent they are. We're not getting a big span. You know, sometimes you put a product out and you get very different opinions from different people. The testing's all been very, very consistent on this. Yes, the spin rate down. Yes, the ball speeds up a little bit. Yes, the durability is much improved. With all that taken into account, how, how quickly before we could see Mizuno balls out on tour, is it even worth going to an established player, let's say 28 years old, at the peak of his career on the PGA Tour, would you approach that play with this ball? Oh, it's definitely in the works. There's there's stuff working in the background, and that's where you know we talked a little bit earlier about uh, the Western world kind of taking the lead or taking charge in ter terms of some of the testing requirements with this golf ball. With that in mind, the goal of this golf ball is is tour play, and we've definitely got a ball that's that's really worthy of that. Now it's just building that confidence within the players and making sure we're ready to go. And I. I feel very confident that that's going to happen in the near future. One of Mizuno's plays of recent years has been next generation, right? Recruiting younger, 18 to 22, evolving with the player. Um, fair to say that the majority of the effort will be put into the younger players coming through who are a little bit more open-minded because once you get to that guy at the peak of his career, he's, he's that much harder to shift regardless. Uh, yeah, I think that that's a very, very fair point. Is that you know once you once you're talking to a player who who's established on the PGA Tour, your uh, DP Tour, like wh wherever they've made it, they've gotten there because of their performance and what they what they know and what they trust. And anytime you bring in variables to these guys, it it, it becomes a little bit scary when you're talking with the younger generation who's a little bit more. I'd call it data-driven on things where you can show performance differences on a track man, on a GC quad, stuff like that. Then all of a sudden, they don't have those, I'd say, built-in biases of, oh, I got to play this, I got to play that. The number's the number. And that next generation recognizes that that number is the number. So with that in mind, we're definitely starting to target some of the younger, faster, swinging, you know, kind of more data-driven players out there. So, so sum all this up for me then, Chris. So what's the, what's the next steps of the ball? What, what are you looking forward to seeing? What, what, what do you think this ball will do in the next year or so? <laughs> you know, 99 prototypes in means I'm not looking to change a whole lot anytime soon. We've done a lot of things to make sure that this ball really performs and it speaks to what a player is looking for in terms of quality, in terms of spin rate, in terms of performance for a Mizuno player. So for the next couple of years, while this is the, our, our, key, our key ball in the market, look for more and more players to adopt it. To me, this is all about performance, and it's all about getting it in people's hands. If you test it, if you try it, I feel very confident that you're going to see that you have a winner here, and it's, it's going to be a great performer. So not a, not a lot of product changes coming ahead. This is it. This is, this is, this is the product. We, we might see this in the market two, three years beyond that. 
no kind of set dates for a replacement. But now, now it's a case of seeding with the right people and, and seeing if we can break through those kind of perception barriers. Well, I think that's one of the big things that you saw with the last generation is we weren't going to rush our next ball to the market. We want to make sure that we're getting noticeable performance, noticeable gains in terms of what are our key goals for the development before we just throw something else out into, into the world. So with these, man, we did our due diligence and these golf balls perform. So until we find something that needs to be improved, man, this is this is our workhorse. And what's your personal choice of the two balls, Chris? What, what have you learned? So personally, I'm a tour X guy. I've always been somebody who, you know, I'd, I'd say I'm a little bit blessed in terms of I I don't battle having too much spin, which I know a lot of players do. If anything, I prefer to generate a little bit more spin. And that's what's funny is because the previous tour X was actually quite good for me because it spun it even more. So I tend to benefit by adding spin to my game. And that's where this Tour X has been a really, really good golf ball for me. Ian, thank, thanks ever so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a up. But last time we saw you, we were, we were over in um, Atlanta hitting JPX 923s. That's right. That's right. Six months ago. And uh, yeah, that was, it's always nice to do a little midsummer launch. But this is the time of year we are. You know, traditionally doing these these product launches. So, um, you know, we've been in full uh, sort of presentation mode again to see all the new gear. So we love it. This is, I mean, it's Christmas by the calendar, but it's also Christmas if you're a golfer because you get to see all the new gear. So some of the stuff we want to show you for the first time today that you haven't seen, and we'd like to show you the new wedges that are coming out back end back end of um, January, and the new driver. Now I remember last year. When you got to test the new drive, I think it was yourself or Ryan at the time, it, it snuck mm. up a little bit of a surprise. You didn't think there was another drive coming. That was, that was something. Then that's right. <laughs> I want to show you this one a little bit in advance, give you a bit of pre-warning. But uh, if we start with the wedges, so the backdrop of this, sometimes you develop a product that maybe commercially isn't a great success, but you actually learn quite a lot from that product that then kind of feeds into something that supersedes it. So, Chris, so that, that product, the, the two I'm talking about would be the ES21 wedges, which mm -hmm. got some great reviews and got a lot of attention. Commercially, weren't the biggest wedges in the world because they were they were sort of constrained, right, by the size, the shape. But it was around the idea of this centered sweet spot. And what most people, most people don't understand is that your classic bladed teardrop wedge, the sweet spot pretty much lives somewhere near the heel. Have I got that right? Yeah, big time. So it's it's funny. We almost like to talk about the ES21 like like it was a concept car. You know, it was it was testing a theory more than anything of what happened when you moved that sweet spot to the exact center. And, you know, it sounds like such a simple task, but when you're talking about a club with, you know, call it 50 plus degrees of loft, a hosel length that's traditionally, you know, the longest in the bag, a blade length that's traditionally the shortest in the bag, you know, that all of those things engineering-wise tend to pull that center of gravity significantly towards the heel. So with the S21, it was just a pull out all stops to move that center of gravity. And to your point, yeah, th those who tested it and reviewed it saw what it could do. The issue was getting it in people's hands to try it because we went about it just in a non-traditional way. And looks-wise, was 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 a bit of a killer for some people. Fair, fair to say that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a two-piece construction uh, with, you know, I call it a, a forged face and neck, a welded back part, an overall, you know, unique look that, that really didn't speak to a traditional Mizuno look. You know, it was definitely more aggressive everywhere. And yeah, I think just naturally, if you don't understand what's going on with it, it I would say it's probably not the one you'd gravitate towards right off the bat. Any experience with that wedge, Ian? AS21? Yeah, I mean, we we tested an awful lot with the, actually the time day. We, we were doing a little bit of uh, CG testing, and I remember uh, Chris and I kind of texting some stuff back and forward around, you know, we were talking about sort of CG placement and, and vertical CG placement and, you know, how that influences spin and, you know, some of the things that we were seeing. And I remember the time there was this kind of uh, test that we were doing internally can you get your spin with a 50-yard shot over 10,000 RPMs? And by far, the easiest wedge to get a spin over 10,000 RPMs with was ES21. So it was uh, it was around around CG placement. So, um, you know, we did test a lot with it. It actually, it's one of those products that does better in our stores than it is likely to do in the market because we get the opportunity to test it with golfers and they're, you know, already given us a pass to put the right clubs in their hands for testing. So we're going to get an hour, 45 minutes to do a wedge fit with them and they're prepared to let us do our thing. So we actually done pretty well with the ES21 um, because, it, you know, it actually performed really well. Talk to me about this hillside sweet spot, Chris. So if I'm Luke Donald and I'm a brilliant wedge player, he's finding that sweet spot by feel or look or how's, how does he... How does he locate it? Well, it's interesting. I, I'd almost say that on a wedge, a, a sweet spot strike for Luke Donald isn't necessarily his goal. You know, if you look at some of the, you know, impact locations of some of the top wedge players, you know, like when you open a wedge, you naturally start to, you know, strike it toe side of the sweet spot. When you hit, when you strike it toe side of the sweet spot, it does a, a couple of things. One, the face like gear effect, it starts to open a little bit more. It adds dynamic loft. It lofts a little bit higher and it tends to spin a little bit more because of that added loft. So with, with Luke, he's not necessarily shooting for that, but you know, when Luke needs to hit a certain spin rate and a certain, you know, type of shot and trajectory with his wedge, he's able to do that. He can, he can move that ball all across that base. I'd say for the average player. They don't have that ability. So when when we can neutralize that sweet spot for that player, then he's more likely to get a more consistent result as opposed to Luke, who's trying to do so many different things. So we, we've thought they spin with grooves for a number of years, haven't we? That's always been the route to spin is groove technology. But actually that kind of squareness of strike and actually hitting out the sweet spot for the majority of us is going to have just as big an impact. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a slightly different thing you know groove spin i'd say on a partial shot like groove spin comes into play a good amount on a full shot cg location i'd say plays a bigger role in terms of spin and when there's no i call it debris between the ball and the club so a you know groove is very valuable but ultimately the cg is going to dictate like the starting point of the spin rate of what that club can produce you know, you look at drivers, you see high spin, low spin drivers. Some of them literally don't even have grooves on the face. It's, it's fake lasers on the face. So it's interesting how grooves are used in different conditions. And yeah, while it's important when you're hitting 
you know, a, a partial shot with the face wide open and a lot of grass around the ball, it's not really what's going to dictate the overall performance of what that club wants to do. Now, I'm looking at the, the new S23 wedges in front of me at the moment on the screen. So same idea or same, same consequence, which is centered sweet spot, but created in a different way so that when that slightly better player, when that better player puts it down, it looks like a wedge he's more familiar and comfortable with. Yeah, I mean, almost going back to that like concept car analogy I used at the beginning, a concept car, it's basically pull out all stops. It doesn't matter just to, to produce a result uh, and then almost form be damned in it. Like, you know, the form will be what it is. I'd say now the S23, it's taking what we learned from the S21 and putting it in a package that's a lot more digestible for more players. First, it brings into the Mizuno world because it goes into the one-piece screen flow forging. Is that that feel element there. That one piece also is going to dictate the look of it also. So it's going to look thinner. It's going to look smaller because you don't have the, the combination of the back piece to a forge face and neck. But when you look at it from behind, there is a little bit of um, you know extreme movement going on. I've got one right here. It's funny. I'm, I'm going to keep it at a distance because this the, the actual logos are a little bit different on this one. This is an early prototype test that we had. But you can see a massive chunk of weight to the toe to do a lot of what we did internally on the ES21. But at address, it's very, very similar to almost like a T-series or an R-series. So that looks to me, obviously, I can see an enormous amount of weight lost from the kind of heel to middle. So is that effectively doing something like, you know, you see a lot of high-toe wedges. Is, is that also doing something similar, but in a different way? Yeah, I think a high-toe... It's a different execution of how to do that. I'd say this is a more high-toe head shape than traditionally Mizuno's have because the heel is lower and the toe is a little bit higher. That's one way to move that center of gravity. But if you're doing it in just a traditional, I'd call it, you know, muscle-back type shape, then you're, you're only moving so much mass. By actually having that cavity cut from the heel side and the center side and shoving all that mass towards the toe, then you're really moving a lot more mass and you're able to make significant movements on the sweet spot. You know, the, the wedge is the heaviest club in the bag. So every gram takes even more, you know, it takes more distance to move that sweet spot than it would on like a driver. Because one gram at the toe of a wedge doesn't do nearly like one gram at the toe of a driver. What's catching your eye there, Ian? Anything? Yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm going to actually over some uh, some of our previous uh, data findings with SA Team. If we go back to the previous version, another product, Dave, that we done incredibly well at our fitting store with uh, with SA Team. And, you know, we almost like we were a little bit lost without it for, for the, the time, <laughs> uh, you know, because we fit so many players to, to these, you know, cavity back golfers, call it the, the hot metal brigade, right? But then they, you know, they see these blade options and they go, well, you know, I'm in this, forgive the story. I've got these other, you know, game improvement elements to my golf clubs. Is is a blade really the best thing for me? You know, because I don't really hit, you know, my wedges all that, all that solid all the time. Is is there something more I should be looking at? And, you know, I think the uh, the industry as a whole has maybe starved the game improvement golfer of, you know, of these options so that it continue to have you know this technology working for them uh, and the scoring shots we 
we know the stats around how many shots are played with the eight iron down to the wedges. And it's the majority of our game. Um, so, you know, when we pick these scoring clubs, you know, we absolutely have to be making the right decisions around, you know, the attributes we need in those clubs. So seeing the continuation into S23, I'm really excited just as I skipped a, a couple of slides ahead there as to what's coming in the tech and the upgrades. So I'm looking at the um, image of the the clubs that address you. So Chris, so one of the things is this idea that we start off with a very kind of teardrop pitching wedge around that, that 46 mark, very straight leading edge. Mm -hmm. It goes much more to that kind of familiar rounded look as, as the lofts increase. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where you know, I'd call it the, the pitching wedge loft and the gap wedge loft. Those are more full swing golf clubs. You know, they're, they're almost extensions of the iron set. So the actual head shape and the ability to, I, I won't say the ability to, but the desire to open the face and still, you know, have a leading edge that's able to get under the golf ball isn't necessarily as big. You know, one of the things with a teardrop shape is traditionally a straighter leading edge, slightly straighter top line, less rounded. So it looks more like it's pointing in a particular direction. As you increase the loft, as you get into the sand wedge and the lob wedge and the higher lofted wedges, and they get a little bit more of that rounded head shape, that S shape or that um, or that R shape, it gives you the ability to be able to open the club a little bit more. And it still looks like, you know, it's not committing to like pointing to the right or something like that. It is an interesting one. So there are certain, there are certain products that we design with tour in mind. And every, every few years we'll design something really more for the amateur golfer and you'll find a product that almost like forces its way on the tour and that's what the s23s have started to do because we actually had some heads out of the workshop the same guys that we showed the es 23 21s off to not particularly weren't easy on the eye but these have had a very very different effect so we've had some very very good players at the company that put them straight into play and su surprisingly to us they've actually worked their way onto the tour as well yeah, that's that's something that actually doesn't surprise me just because the, the packaging is so much cleaner than the previous. You know, one, once you look at it, and it's almost like for the tour, it has to pass the eye test before anything. So once it's passed that eye test, then all of a sudden you start to be able to recognize some of the benefits that you get from that, you know, movement of the center of gravity. I'm sure Ian can speak to it in terms of, you know, overcoming that initial look and then proving it out with the numbers. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You know, the, there are so many times in the bay you actually don't even get the chance to to show the numbers uh, that that you know you know that the the players likely to experience because you know they take a look at it and you kind of see the body language change, right, positive or negative, and you're looking for that as a fitter because you're going, okay, you know, what do they think? How are they reacting to? It? Are we likely to give this a fair shake, or are we not going to give this a fair shake? So. That as a designer, obviously, is the challenge of okay. We know we poured into this, but can we get it, you know, past that that look test, um, and and even, you know, look and and into the next, you know, the next part of that conversation is feeling feedback because all those things, those three things happen: look, feeling feedback before we get a chance to judge the numbers. You know, th those are immediate sort of reactions. Um, so that they are, I mean, in a lot of people's eyes, they're, they're actually, they'll supersede even, even in some of the, the things that people look for, you know, in terms of performance and, and launch and spin, et cetera. 
how does it look? How does it feel? And uh, you know, what's it like in your hands? So there's almost like a different pain point, I think, for amateurs versus pros. I tend to find that some pros are actually a little bit more open-minded than some amateurs because it's that because it's their craft, because it's their profession, because it's their income. I tend to find they're less they're less interested in what a club looks like on the back. They almost don't see the back of the club. I tend to find with amateurs, you do you, there's a there's a certain body of thought that it needs to look a certain way on the shelf at the back. Has it got a muscle? Has it got any weird designs? I tend to find with tall pros, from my experience, they look straight past that. He comes off the rack and he goes straight into playing position. There's a there's almost like a different pain point that they're prepared to tolerate. I think it appears that some amateurs are not prepared to go through that pain point sometimes. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I'd say for sure that the look at a dress is the first thing that's noticed from the uh, from the better player, from the from the tour player in particular. You know, as long as it looks at a dress, they don't care what it looks like from behind. It's, it's like look past the address look and then past the numbers. For the, pl- uh, for the higher handicap, it's almost the opposite of that. It's like it has to look right from behind and then we'll start looking at the numbers. So again, it's, it's just a different way of looking at things and certain players that really focus on other things. So I think it's fair to say with this maybe has snuck up on a little bit of this project because it's been it's been in the in the making for quite some time. Is it is it fair to say some products almost come out better than you expect? And if there was a category for that, this would I think the S twenty threes would be in there. Yeah, I mean, I we we knew we had a good product. We knew we had something there with the with the central centralizing of the sweet spot. So we know the market for it. We know the performance of what it's going to do. And then it just becomes, you know, can can we package it properly? And I think we've done so with the S twenty three. You know, there's still a wide market that's really going to be you know drawn towards T twenty two, and T twenty two is not going anywhere. That's still the more traditional player. But for those who are really wanting to focus, I'd almost say more on some of the numbers. You might see something that that'll shock you out out of the S twenty three, and continuation of the grind story: S grind, D grind, C grind, X grind. What we've become, yeah, that's a good in the T twenty two. That's a definitely a good, um, I'd call it extension of what that S would do before, where the ES it really just there was a wide sole and a narrow sole, and that was it. With the S twenty three, you have all the options that you add within the, within the T twenty two line. But then you have the spin performance from that centralized sweet spot. Um, obviously, we're not going to have a huge conversation about grooves, but the continuation of the loft specific grooves and hydroflow micro grooves and all the things we've got used to in T22. Um, but a- anything else stand out, Chris? We've got two different finishes as well. Yeah, so we have a couple different finishes for a couple different looks. There's a uh, what we call a copper cobalt finish as well as a white satin finish. So for that player who wants that little bit of a darker head, actually brings the size the look down even a touch further below when you when you get that uh darker finish but yeah again it's just all about options with the wedge it's getting something that looks right in your eye something that looks comfortable and then if we can deliver some spin numbers they hadn't seen before we've really done the right things are they both permanent finishes or is, is one designed to rust or wear or so they're both uh they're both plated finishes as opposed to uh i'd call it some of the you know, more surface finishes we've had with some of our other clubs. Like the blue is typically an ion plating and our and our actual denim copper was a little bit more of a of a ion plating on top as well. They tended to fade. This copper cobalt's gonna last a little bit longer, but copper is a softer material. So that copper is going to fade ever so slightly, but not as aggressively or not as quickly as the denim copper. Do you have a, have a preference on um finish there, Ian? 
your classic dialogue. Yeah. I love the new, uh, what we call Copper Cobalt. Copper Cobalt, yeah. That's the one for me. I think that one looks looks so good. I mean, I think, you know, we always like, you know, uh, kind of a nice chrome wedge, looks super clean, but that that Copper Cobalt is is very, very, uh, very classy, very premium. But I'm going to move pretty quickly onto the woods because that's the main reason we got here on the call-in because we wanted, we wanted to make sure you were well prepared this time out. <laughs> you may, may have seen a little bit dancing around on your social feeds for the last couple of months. Um, what's the best way of framing this, Chris? So, so we've been in this, we call it the, the ra rapid-fire development phase. So everyone knows Mizuno Woods, if we, if we wind it back four or five years, probably at the point where we were admittedly an, we've become an iron specialist, well, and that's not what Mizuno's been historically, right? We've always been a, a multi-category, through-the-bag equipment uh, manufacturer. But we could probably slid a little bit on the woods, and we've gone through what we call the rapid-fire development process. So we, we wanted to get the woods back on tour. All the contracted guys now have woods in the bag. And it just kind of took us to this point where there's been a new driver every year. And as, as you said, Ian, it almost kind of took you by surprise last year. So we've reached the end of that phase, Chris. This is the end of the rapid-fire development. <laughs> Put that into your words. Uh, I guess I'll speak to it more from the development side. As you're right, you know, we it's been a little bit of a rapid fire in terms of, you know, we had the um, ST190 line, the STZ and STX, and followed by the STX220, now the STX230. We've, we've had a lot of, it feels like, you know, iterative improvements year over year. And what we've been doing in that is just, I, I don't want to say catching up but i'd say it's more of a building a foundation for what what represents a mizuno wood so what you've seen is over the last couple of generations you know strategic improvements in speed one year and then adding stability to that speed the following year then speed then add stability to that speed so each one like a stair step to get to where we have the foundation that we wanted to and i'd say the 220 line was that and we saw it in the testing you know, all, all the testing and the, you know, the driver bracket, the 220 did quite well. So I'm excited about that. Um, from there, though, in the background, we have, we are, you know, our intense research team who's doing some, I'd call it more long-term development, uh, you know, just ideas and working out a bunch of different prototypes and, you know, working on things that aren't necessarily going to make it to the next product. And that's really where our core tech chamber comes from. And that's really what was going on in the background of our quick development. So with the 230, we've taken everything we've done leading up to the 220 and then just added that extra little bit to it. That almost like that missing piece that that's there to really boost the performance to the next level. What are you looking at, Ian? Because I can't see your screen. Is there anything catching your eye there? <laughs> um, I just, I mean, it's, it's just very interesting. They're trying to kind of... Uh in my mind, follow the journey, right, of, of what we've kind of went through from, uh, from back to kind of 190, you know, that, that entry uh, driver, that I, I would call it entry driver for me, because I don't think we ever, I don't think we ever held Mizuno Woods prior to ST190. So that to me was a bit of a journey or a bit of an entry into the, the journey with Mizuno Woods. And um, it has been... You know, I'll be, I'll be very honest, it has been a lot of fun to see the evolution and, and 
kind of be on the journey with you guys because we get a chance to do these types of calls and then get a chance to hear mm-hmm. the stories and what's going on behind the scenes. And you guys are so honest about what you do these these incremental steps to you know play catch up, like Bosch said. And um, you know, I think there's one certainly. I think we talked about with the wedge that the, the uh, passing the eye test. I mean, the new driver striking. You know, I was I was never the biggest fan of the blue crown uh, in the previous models in the 180, but. I think the the added, you know, uh, so the the blue visual on the new one is 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 perfect. It's the perfect amount of of Mizuno, <laughs> uh, you know, that Mizuno blue in uh, there. I'm just, you know, super super excited. I mean, we we know ball speed is the metric that pretty much, pretty much all drivers are judged on, rightly or wrongly. I mean, we'll try and you know guide the ball speeds conversation into a stroke gained conversation conversation because that's what we want it. You know, judge golf products on do they lower your scores, but it's it, we can't hide from it. Ball speed to a driver is what horsepower is to a car. You know, we have mm-hmm. to have that. You know, we, if we're gonna, you don't want to give a, an advantage on on horsepower away to another driver because he then has some you know ability to to kind of do some other things, maybe not as well as you. You have to drive the perfect race. If you've got ball speed, then you know you're you're well on the way to to winning the race. I'm glad it jumped out at least. I mean, so Chris and I have been on this project for a little while. The first thing that happened, so you saw some of those pictures earlier on and some of our kind of social ambassadors have posted some films and the the process is the same every time. Oh, that looks different. We've had that. That's the first thing. Oh, what's that? Then we get that. And there's, there's the address position. Oh, okay. Kind of looks similar, but it's different. I can't tell how it's different, but I prefer it. And then the third thing is, is obviously impact sound. Impact sound is probably been the biggest improvement, Chris, in terms of if you could, if you could categorize everything, the biggest reaction is on the sound, isn't it? Then find I'd say it's the most noticeable. I, I mean, in ter- to me, from the engineering side, the improvement's ball speed. Like as Ian said, like to me, that's the number one thing. Cause that's the metric of which drivers are based off of. If you can create ball speed, then you got something, then you can fine tune it from there. But to that point, on first strike, before you even look back and see what those numbers are, you knew something different went on because the sound is different as well. So we're calling it the missing piece, the Cortex Chamber. Can you can you explain to the pair of us exactly how that works? So I'm I'm looking at a little cross section of it, which is that that TPU section. It seems to be in the yep. position where the old uh, Shockway sole used to be. Just just explain that to us a little. Yeah, and it's interesting because you know there's. I'd say the industry is full of ways to move stress from the face. And, you know, a lot of times it's a sole execution. We've had our wave sole technology for a number of years. The point of the wave sole technology is to essentially make that trampoline act larger, you know, make the face play bigger, increase ball speed, do everything you can there. And it's like the, the layman's engineering way. I always like to explain why the sole is so important is just because the driver has lost. Because it has loft, you know, the angle between the sole and the driver, this is a naturally rigid shape. So if you can soften that shape and the reaction of that shape, you're going to get more out of it. On the crown, it's the opposite because it's greater than 90 degrees. Because there you would naturally, it's it's not a super, you know, rigid shape. So if you can really focus this area down here, you can do something in terms of creating that trampoline acting larger. So with the wave sole, we did it in a one-piece construction where it was a... It was a titanium execution 
but we actually put a wave that actually moves some of that um some of that stress off the face onto the sole to make it play larger where the new one is different is that and i'm actually going to bring up I've, I've got it right here but i've also got to me the more interesting one is this one right here kind of the components of it where you can actually see the this goes completely through you know that that's that you can see air in there when you get air in there you get even more compression so you get that face playing even springier and then we actually filled it with the tpu material that tpu material is going to make sure obviously like no water gets in it like you know it it's going to um maintain the durability of the face uh, but it's also going to allow it to flex and then the really interesting thing is when you start to dive within the tpu there's actually embedded weight within that so that mass in there does a couple of things one it helps us concentrate the weight low where you want it so you can make sure you're getting the spin rates and launch parameters that you want but another thing that's really interesting is just dynamically the reaction that the entire head has as this as this material compresses because the weight is actually in there the weight actually has a subtle i'd call it you know almost like a delayed movement within it where because of the inertia of that weight almost holds it in place as the face compresses and then as it starts to spring back the power of that actually boosts a little bit more ball speed as well so overall we've seen jumps in ball speed from every player just because of the combination of the full cut through the TPU and then the weight embedded within that TPU and how it reacts dynamically. I know that was that was kind of a long-winded way to talk about it, but it's it's something that we've never experienced in terms of seeing not just a I'd say the 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 general benefit of some of these soul features has been a lack of ball speed loss. This was the first time through our testing that we actually saw a ball speed. And I think there's a difference there. And and the, my, my layman's terms of process and all that was, again, and because that's now taken a little bit of the stress and the strain, you've also managed to get the face a little bit thinner as well. Yeah, it, it's amazing what a feature like that can do in terms of allowing you to optimize every part of the golf club. So because we've taken some of that stress away, we've actually been able to thin out uh, the actual lower portion of the face as well. So the actual Cortex design has a thinned out area here. And also we were able to actually save a little bit of mass up here on, along the, uh, the top edge as well with our, our COR ribs up there. All these things equal thinner face equals faster ball speed, uh, you know, more COR, but also it's less mass in the face. So more mass is discretionary that we can place around to make it for optimal performance and for more forgiveness. So very much what every manufacturer is trying to do. So when you try and frame this, is it is it any different? It's actually we're all trying to achieve similar things, correct? We're trying to get a little bit of weight flow, space, trying to drop some spin rates, we're trying to increase some ball speeds. We're almost at the point of who's building the best mousetrap at the moment. Is that reasonable? I, I think that's a very fair fair thing. You know, it's, it's ultimately who's going whose mousetrap works best in the fitting studio. That that's what we're working for. We're all playing the same game with the ultimate results and the, you know the measurements being ball speed, launch angle, spin rate. You know those are those are the three initial ones that dictates everything down line. So it's all what can we do to optimize all of those different factors. Ian, I can't imagine that's anything you haven't heard before from every manufacturer in terms of increased speed, reduced spin. What was different? Anything? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think 
I think what people, you know, we, I just would maybe give them a second to understand why there's always such a focus on the soul, right? You know, why there's never this materials being added to the top because, you know, when we, when we take into consideration vertical gear effect, you know, we, we are okay with sacrificing a little bit of ball speed higher in the head and having less mass up there because we get the gains of high launch, low spin, right? So we hit the ball above the center of gravity we tilt the loft of the driver, we get the decrease in backspin, we can lose three, four miles in our ball speed, but we actually get gains on the launching speed. There's so much focus onto the design of the sole of the golf club because we want additional contribution and flex to you know give us more energy back into the golf ball. So, you know, Cortec doing such a you know a great job to take the the evolution of wave technology is going to give us that, I would say. The biggest evolution for me in the last five years of driver is, well, for, I mean, we've talked this for a while, off sensor performance. And I think that's whether you're talking vertical, whether you're talking lateral, as fitters, we're not judging our golfer's performance on one shot. We're trying to have multiple shots. And the only way that a driver can win out over his competitor is to have the best range overall, you know, in, in the fit session. So it needs to perform all over the face nowadays. It's not just, you know, we're at such an advanced stage of, of club development that they all perform phenomenally well uh, out of the middle of the, the club. But we have to make sure that off-centre, we get the right balance of, of gear effect and we get the right balance of ball speed. And and obviously, this is the next evolution of that. Proof will come in when you get your samples and you actually get, get to try these out. <laughs> uh, I'll certainly be testing that. I'll put the, the lower part of the head to good use there, but I might wear that out and I drive her. They go too low because there's something on the bottom as well, Chris. So the um, the other <laughs> thing is we've got two drivers. I'm looking at the shot of the X and and the Z the Z now. Before we get, I'm saying, how can I be saying Z? It's said, let's go Z. I'm looking at the Z next to each other. So you've got this unified sole composite as well, Chris. So that's something that's familiar to both of them, and that's a little step forwards on what we had before. Yeah, again, it's it's all about optimization of weight placement. You know, our previous version on the two twenties. We had multiple windows, uh, particularly on the Z, there was a toe window and a heel window, which when you're putting composite, you know, the weight, the point of composite is to move mass around, to use a lighter material in place of a heavier material. But when you have two windows, then you have that titanium in the middle that's, you know, concentrating some denser material there. And also two windows equals two sets of, you know, adhesive to hold those that in place. So if you can unify that and basically just optimize the, um, the placement of that material it allows you to move mass around so again like you know I'll, I'll hold up this is the z right here you can see it's a very uniform one piece of of composite that's going to go on here and allow us to you know take something ultra light you know this weighs i believe at five or six grams if that uh, in a space that should weigh you know 15 or 20 grams so again that gives you a ton of mass to concentrate where you need it and a lot of that there's the mass that's concentrated in that weight within the cortex chamber. But more importantly than that, even is this massive weight that lives at the back. You know, this, this weight back here really is, that's where stability comes from. And that's, what's funny is, you know, people think about toe heel weighting as equaling stability, but on a driver, the face is so heavy. You gain, get your most MOI gains by putting mass deep and that deep weight and that concentration of that mass allowed by this, the weight saving composite makes this thing very, very stable. And slightly different in the X and the Z. 
So you've got yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I just went off on the X, and I got the Z right here as well. So you can see the actual concentration of the mass. It's a little bit more focused down. You got that, Chris? Chris, just to pause you on yeah. that one. Which which one are you holding now? Sorry, I'm holding the X right now. What did I say? Did I say the Z? Sorry. Okay, I got the the Z right here and the X right here. Both of them concentrating the mass in a slightly different way. With the Z, the mass is concentrated as low and deep as possible. Uh, or along this, what we call the Z-axis, which is you know directly parallel to the face. The X-axis we talk about is you know more in line with the hosel. So we pull a little bit more mass this direction towards the hosel. That really is going to add a little bit more playability to it. I'd say workability more than anything. So let me get out. Sorry, I'm keep reaching for components. Uh, the the actual titanium on this one, or sorry, the composite on this one, it's more toe side, so which puts more weight. You know kind of in this low x-axis area pulling it here to again give you a deep center of gravity but also one that still allows this club to be more workable so this this is where the story gets a little bit more interesting than ian this is where you come out of maybe more techno speak and into like how the two models have evolved and one is kind of so the previous iteration z was always kind of straight stable maybe even slightly fade bias and the X kind of started life as a slower swing speed guy who was looking for a bit more spin and the ball to really kind of turn over. But it's kind of evolved past being a, a draw spin, hook spin type driver, Chris, and it's, it's actually turned into something slightly different this time. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's interesting when you talk about center gravity placement along the X axis. You know, it's when you're talking about an adjustable driver, people have gotten to the point of understanding move weight to the heel, which you know basically makes the club hook more. But really what you're doing is you're making the club easier to hook, not necessarily making it hook more because you're lowering the moment of inertia about that shaft axis. So I, I, I say that, and again, I'm using a lot of engineering terms to get to, to make a point of when you move that mass in that direction, it puts the player a little bit more in control and the head a little bit less in control. I think a good analogy is if you actually look at a muscle back iron, a muscle back has the shortest center of gravity to shaft axis of any club out there in terms of the iron world because it's a small blade length, it's got a long hosel, but a muscle back isn't prone to draw. A muscle back is prone to be workable. If somebody wants to draw it, they're able to draw it easier. And I think that's where the conversation around what the x is and who it speaks to was a little bit different this time where previously we i'd say we pigeonholed it as being a, like a draw bias thing it's funny as we because we've actually added a 9.5 off the have last time this x has a 9.5 a 10.5 and a 12 and actually the head shape and the ability to work the ball has actually led this to actually go into some tour players bags which has been a real shocker which has been cool so, I mean, I know over here in um, European tour, we had, uh, I think, Marco Penge and OJ Farrell both actually ended up walking away playing the X, which wasn't what was expected at all. It was almost, they did the fitting with the Z, and then you throw that one in at the last moment, just, just for the comparison, because both of those guys came from the previous seat, and they both walked away with the next this time out. So, some, and also a few extra yards for a couple of those guys as well, Chris. Again, something to do with where the weight's placed and their club path and maybe a little bit more squareness. Well, I'd say that's, that's probably coming from the ability to, if, if you turn it over, that's uh, less energy being in the spin bucket and more energy in the ball speed bucket. 
traditionally a lower spin drawing golf shot will have slightly higher ball speed than one that's going straight or fading. Same. So when when these come in for testing, I think it sort of this will be the surprise this time out is to really look at them as more as equal partners rather than the Z being the dominant and the X being this more kind of niche type products. Yeah, exactly. And and just looking for as as fitters, we're looking for uh, more tools and and different tools. So as as I look at the spec sheet between Z and X, and you know we we talk about the weight difference, the the weight displacement. By having more carbon on the toe, that allows us to displace weight in order to maximize the effect of moving the CG towards the heel. But the, the one sort of little sneaky nugget in there is on lie angle. So as we move to a slightly more upright lie angle on the X versus the Z, that gives us as fitters the ability to change start line a little bit. So, you know, as, as we kind of tilt that loft uh, in a specific direction, that's our ability to influence the start line of the driver. So we have a driver that is an easier start line to the left. And people look at, you know, these types of things like that must be a draw driver. Not always. Because if you're a fader of the golf ball, what's the one thing you don't want to do? Start the ball right as a right-handed golfer. Mm-hmm. So when we have the ability to tilt lie angle let up a little bit, start that ball left to ensure that we get the start line left to, you know, cater to the fade, we need to have those tools and, you know, we're seeing lots of drivers going flatter, flatter, flatter from other companies. And this has just given me more options to go, okay, if you're a fade guy and you need to see you do this, good. If you're more of a jaw or a neutral guy, you need it to do this, good. We've just got more options and that's what we want as fitters. Chris, before we show you in the next one, just just what's the broad kind of feedback from tour testing? You know, Keith's been testing, Luke's been testing, Grayson Sig, Bryson Nimmer. Is there a consistency in the feedback? Yeah, I mean it's it's been very consistently positive, and it's it's funny if you look at the history of Mizuno driver usage on tour. While we have more now than we have for the last number of years, the traditional cadence has been: we launch a driver, you know, call it in February, and then in March we have one trickle into a bag, and then in, in April one or two more, and it's almost like by the middle of the summer we've finally worked everybody into the bag. This has been a completely different animal with the 230 line because, as, as Ian said, we've got multiple levers to pull and we've got multiple options. And because of the performance that's coming from the Cortex chamber and the thinning out of the face and everything, so to a man and to a woman also, including Stacey Lewis, every single player has gone immediately into these. We've seen consistent jumps in ball speed of between, I'd call it half a mile to as much as two miles per hour. And we've seen consistent drops in spin rate as well. We've had a good mix of Z and X players as about 50-50 between the two. And literally, it's it's just refreshing and it's fun to see that, you know, that entire, just, you know, pulling it full circle, that entire process of the rapid development with the development of the Cortex chamber in the background, all of this, once it's put together, everything's clicking. And the tour players have adopted it immediately. So we we'll look forward to seeing some of these. Hopefully, hopefully we get a win on the books, but it's just that feeling of um, momentum, I think, isn't it? And the idea that actually you, you change what's important, which is the technology, but actually the looks not that different, which makes it so much easier for us to go and approach these guys. And if they stick it down at a dress and there's not a big shift, then, then we just then we just step back into a numbers game. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, funny, because actually sometimes again, what's right for the pro isn't always what's right for the amateur golfer. 
and actually having a drive with a very similar kind of crown proposition year after year was possibly seen as um, a conservative play, conservative and risky at the same time because it looks conservative, but there's obviously the risk that people will look at it and say, well, there's not too much difference to the last one. But it was something as a company we had to do to keep the trust of the tour players that they know we weren't going to put a curveball in on them every other year, that we actually believed in something. And there was a specific look to the Mizuno driver that could kind of get familiar with. So hopefully we put ourselves in a position now with those younger guys that there's an element of trust that probably wasn't there four or five years ago. It all now comes yeah, back I'm son with it. I would say it comes like almost to a conversation that Dave said a few minutes ago in terms of which players look at which area. Like for the tour players, the confidence in the in the crown shape of it pretty being pretty consistent year over year, uh, it's not a dramatic jump for them. So that you know, if they're already in one driver, we're not giving them something so radically different to look at. But on the sole side, which is a little bit more you don't want to say where the amateurs look, but the stuff that at retail ops it's dramatically different down here. What it does under the hood is totally different. And the execution of like the blue on the Cortex chamber and the composite, it's a totally different look from here, but it's very comfortable here. So then we're going to the, the third one of the group is the STX Platinum. So this kind of sits where the old, the original, original STX was designed to sit, correct? Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, we, it almost, I'd say we got a little bit too engineery or nerdy in terms of like the ability to adjust head weights where different shafts had different um had different weights to the heads and different lengths and all these things where now we we pulled the STX platinum almost out on its own which the STX platinum is is what's built to our J spec our Japan spec so it features the lighter weight components a lighter weight head the, uh, the actual back weight in the head itself is significantly lighter because the overall head weight's lighter because it's built half an inch longer with a lighter grip, lighter shaft as well. So this is more designed for that player who just wants those lightweight components. And I'd say this is the lower swing speed version of the STZ, sorry, STX230. And I think you might mention it a little bit. It's actually a longer club app as well, right? Three quarters of a little. It is. It's half inch longer by standard, correct. Okay, so I'm just looking at the, the maze of specs and Ian's already picked up a few things on Liangor. Anything else to jump out of you there, Ian? Um, no, no, not necessarily, Dave. Um, no, I think um, I think we have we've covered all in terms of the loft options to go down in loft. I mean, even, even a platinum that can be a little bit longer length but significantly lighter. And even turning the the uh, the loft down to eight point five, right? So for potentially when we get long at golfers that use longer shafts, and we're trying to, you know, give them the opportunity to maximize the launch conditions, and you know they're they're really trying to be hitting upward on it. But our job as fitters when they're hitting up on it enough is to get in the loft in the right you know window to maximize launch and spin and speed, and uh, and having you know loft range. You know I think. You know, it's just too easy just to give slower swing speed players, you know, high lofted drivers. Oh, you don't have enough speed. Go, go take a 12. You know, mm -hmm. we're not looking for that. We're looking to optimize that spin loft window and get them exactly into the right spot. So, you know, having a, a sleeve as adjustable as what you guys have is is phenomenal options for golfers. And I think, you know, I would challenge people at demo days, you know, go, go experience what a, a lower lofted driver could potentially do for you. You know, I think people would be shocked that how little accuracy they would sacrifice and potentially how much distance they could gain. 
to moving on to the next thing, you 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 tested the previous STZ fairway, and it was a one of our more successful tests of the last you know five or six years. You got uh, very very well ranked in your ending of your reviews. You quite like the bent angles and stoppability and stuff like that. It was, it was a nice all round package for you, if I remember right. It, yeah, I mean, there's there's been so much. Uh, I would say uh, the fairway. There's been a lot of evolution in the last few years. Lots of been lots of uh, companies doing different things with uh, with three wood, and there's been there's been ball speed gains. We go back to 2013ish and rocket balls, and you know, but we we kind of know a little bit of the stories of why that particular fairway was so fast. It was a bit of a loft story, being a little bit lower than advertised there. The evolution of it, right? So. When we got our hands on uh, on on the the SCC fairway wood, it was it was the ball speed and the launch and the maintenance of spin, right? So we're always looking for the right amount of spin when it comes to three wood because it's not a it's not a ball or golf club, but we kind of need it to be at times. So it's got to have that versus that versatility of tee and turf. So it was just it can launched in such a perfect window, and and we were. We have to be honest. We're pretty shocked at, at you know how much it uh, it, it you know, gave us that ability to fly far but land it soft. And I think the story is very un- is very similar with the fairway, and it was with the drivers, Chris. So I'm looking at the image now. I've got the X, the Z, mm-hmm. the fairway, and the hybrid. So this is where the Cortex chamber then kind of goes on, right? It goes. It's a nice, it, relatively straightforward thing to explain because it's the same technology that goes through fairway and hybrid. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's it's the same goals with the Cortex Chamber, the same goals of everything we were doing to develop a fairway wood that wants to launch high, but also wants to maintain spin. You know, there, it's a world of low spin fairway woods, which if you have ridiculous ball speed is a great thing. But if you don't, then you kind of lose a little bit of what why you're hitting a three wood. So with ours, I'd call the STZ, the 230, I'd call it a mid-low spin. It's not one of the crazy low spins where you're going to see, you know, 2200, 2100 out of a three wood. It's going to live more in those high 2000s, but at the same time, it's going to do it with a very consistent uh, aspect to it. Ball speeds are consistent, spin rates are consistent, carry distance are are, are consistent as well, which to me, I think is a huge thing when you're, you're typically, you're pulling a three wood either for, you know, for accuracy as opposed to a driver or potentially, you know, trying to get you a little bit further down range if you can have a consistent uh performance out of it i think you've really gained something i'm looking at the cross section at the moment and, and you, you you told the story quite well you know you've got that big back way there there's also even around the um, cortex chamber there's a lot of thickness to that salt bay there at the front yeah and that's that's just placement of weight for for ease of launch you know it's in a fairway wood it's not as I'd say from an engineering side, you don't want to say any club is easy to engineer, but a fairway wood is a lot easier than a driver because you've got more mass to play with and you've got more, you know, places to to put stuff where you don't have to be at minimum thickness across the entire design like you do on a driver. So on the fairway wood, you know, if the goal is to launch this thing easy, then that uh, center of gravity actually putting that mass low and near the core tech chamber is going to help it launch easier. And at the same time, you know, I've talked about the benefit of the Cortex Chamber, how it allows that uh, TPU material to actually compress. The more mass you can put back behind it, that's almost like, you know, a wall that that base compresses against to give you even more contribution from that spring back of the 
cortex chamber itself. So by actually like reinforcing back here, when that cortex chamber compresses, you get incrementally more ball speed out of that. So what we've seen from this compared to the last version is a slight uptick in ball speed, but you're still maintaining that mid to low spin that you know gives you a really nice carry. And the other thing I'm noticing there is very similar with the driver's story. Because of the Cortex chamber, we're able to thin out some of that face a little bit as well. So we've still got the same high-spec still face, but slightly... And again, one of the reasons we're able to rework it is the support of the Cortex chamber to take some of the stress off the face. Exactly right. The, the, we're always trying to make things as thin as possible, as thin as the rest of the design will allow. When you're talking about ball speed, you want to maximize that, so you want to go as thin as you can. By adding the Cortex chamber, it allowed us to move some of that stress from the face, which allowed that face to take on a little bit more. So when it can take on more, we can go thinner with it. So it's really exciting just how one small little feature on the sole can affect almost every little bit of you know thickness across the entire head. So Ian, the, one of the implications of this is we've now got that that those both those drivers you saw, the three drivers will be in the range for, for two years. They're no longer one year product. I kind of feel like we've got to the end of this kind of spurt of development. There's almost nowhere to go with what we know right now. That's that's literally what we can do. <laughs> be there for two years, and this ferry would be around for a couple of years as well. So, hopefully, for people like yourself, that that makes life a little bit easier as well. Yeah, yeah, I think stability and and um, and the product line is definitely appreciated at consumer level and and at retail level as well. Um, providing providing the, the the products obviously are are high performance right so you know we we love when we've got you know products that we we can have for a couple of years and and we can kind of continuously offer great service and great results but uh there's nothing more frustrating than going oh we're stuck with this one for for a couple of years so <laughs> you know I, yeah, i'm looking across there's one particular slide in the deck and i'm not sure how public it's going to be but and then it's always what we're interested in is, is comparison testing, you know, against other, you know, competitors in the field and, you know, what does it come up against and how does it fare? Um, you know, and I, I saw as I, as I picked that slide up and kind of uh, digested it a little bit, it brought a bit of a smile to my face because, you know, I know, you know, the balance of creating the three wood in, in terms of the launch, the speed, the, the spin maintenance, um, you know, it's it's a challenge. So it's, it's a real, real challenge to uh, you know to get that into someone's bag. Three woods are a challenge to hit first and foremost. The longest, least lofted club that we hit off the ground or centered close to the ground. So you know, it, it's often a challenge and one to fit people to. So looking at the some of the comparison numbers here, you know, I'm, I'm really, really excited. I think again from the consumer's perspective. You know, we're going to be in a window for a couple of years of very expensive uh, fairy woods. Um, and, you know, I think there's there's a win for Mizuno in there as well, um, you know, if, if testing shakes out the way we think it could. And one thing I love about the uh, the longer life cycle is as fitters, as, as you get confident and you begin to understand what a club's going to do, I think it, it really is just going to continue to give you more, I'd say, confidence through the years to, to be able to rely on something. You know, when you have a quick, quick change cycle, every time, every time, the fitters are relearning each product and, and knowing the intricacies of where this will work and where it won't work. You know, because we're so confident in the technologies we put behind this, that's why we're confident to give it a longer life. 
And then once the fitters understand it, which again, that that's what's great about Ian, is understanding what makes a club perform and what to pull off the rack when you're looking for a certain you know key characteristic. And now that we have that, I think we're just going to be a winner for everybody. And then another thing that we've got to learn through the process, Chris, and this goes all the way through to the hybrid. So you've also got Cortex Chamber through the STZ hybrid, which effectively replaces one of the oldest clubs in the range. So we're talking about one-year life cycles. This replaces the CLK. That it feels like forever. Um, slightly more generous than its size. Something again we've learned from Tour and from previous and fairways and hybrids. The smallest fairway, the smallest hybrid, aren't always the ones that attract the better players, right? They're actually a generous player that sits correct is often more popular, and that's what we're going to see in both of these, the fairway and the hybrid. Well, and I'd say as, as designs have become more sophisticated, it's given the ability to give a little bit more size to a fairway wood and a hybrid. You know, it, it when hybrids were first, I wouldn't say when they were first getting introduced, but, you know, for a number of years, the only hybrids that worked for better players were hybrids that were small. So, you know, the CLK, it was on the smaller side of the world. And because of that smaller side of the world, that that's how we were able to get the spin performance, launch performance we were looking for that spoke to a lot of better players. Now that we're a little bit more, I'd call it, you know, sophisticated and getting better and better with all of our designs. Now a better player can recognize, hey, if I can get the spin rate and launch that I had from that smaller one, but get the forgiveness of that little bit larger footprint. And I mean, that's, again, it's all about consistency. It's about better performance. It's about strokes gained. So you're right. Because of what we've done on the design, it is a touch larger, a touch more forgiving, but you're not losing any of that uh, performance that you had from the previous. Does that resonate with you, Ian? Yeah, definitely. I think we, we always felt like CLK was... It had its it had its window it had its it was a niche product that it was it was smaller by design it was that very very narrow shape front to back and and you you pulled it for a specific type of customer but that's not ultimately going to be what pleases the the, the bosses you know when when it comes to sales they hit the end of the year and and we want to move the most amount of units so you know we we've got to capture the widest net and uh in terms of you know the players who we can put this in their hands so. You know, I think expanding the, the size of it slightly is, is going to do exactly that. I mean, we look at some of the really popular, um, you know, hybrids in our in our matrix. They, they do tend to be the kind of maybe the, the mid-size ones. Maybe not the smallest, maybe not the largest, but the ones kind of, you know, somewhere in the middle is where we do really, really well with hybrids. And, and hybrids are a bit of a tricky spot right now because there's a real resurgence in high-lofted fairways. You know, there's a real movement towards high lofted fairways right now. So I think moving the head size to be a little bit larger is really, really smart. And anything anything else to cover in that hybrid, Chris? We've got the, the waffle crest, not a graphite crown as it is with the fairways. It's um it's just the the old waffle crown. Well, no, I mean I, I mentioned that how a fairway would that you have a little bit more mass to play with than in a driver, and a hybrid you have even more mass to play with. So you're able to concentrate things without having to go as extreme with the multi-material so that it doesn't feature a composite like the fairway wood and the driver do but we do have a waffle crown to move mass lower and with that we've got a lot of mass concentrated really low on this thing so it launches very very easy uh, and performance wise versus maybe clk and what's what's come before it chris where, where does it sit in terms of ball speeds and launch and 
Yeah, I mean, whenever we can go thinner on the face, you're going to see more ball speed. So because of the cortex chamber, what it allowed us to do, moving some of that stress and strain from the face to the sole side, we were able to go thinner so you can get more ball speed, but we still concentrated a lot of mass low. So it launches easy and it's very forgiving. So again, to me, it's it's a step forward in every aspect of performance. Easier to hit, easier to launch, faster launching. So to me, this this is a really nice uh, nice advancement in our hybrids. And always like to close with what the new stuff's going to end up in your bag this year, Chris. Or has anything really worked its way in? You you had a sneak hybrid one of one of the um, YouTube videos early this year. You're making. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, this actually been really good for me. And I know Ian spoke a little bit about the resurgence of the higher lofted ways. It's interesting, you know, the the two thirty driver, the Z, I went straight into my bag. I saw faster ball speed, and to be honest, it's a different. It launches in a different window than my previous Z did. I've always struggled with with the Mizuno driver. I wouldn't say I've struggled with it, but I've never been able to get that ultra high launch low spin. That I'll say some some competitors are really good at that ball that just you know flies crazy high with no spin. I'm able to produce that shot with this one that I haven't been able to, but at the same time, I'm not losing anything. So I can still have the ability to, to hit the penetrating shot as well. So it's like, it, it almost has an extra shot in the bag with the driver that my previous one did. And on the fairway wood side, I loved my Z uh, three wood and five wood that Ian talked about earlier. The new Z is even better. And actually the one thing I noticed with them is they actually launched a little bit higher than the previous one. So I was actually able to go a degree stronger with both the three and the five. So I have an STZ three five, uh, driver, three wood and five wood, but the three and the five set one strong. Again, just even more speed, even more distance. Did, did you manage to catch Chris playing with Luke? Ian? I did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, and the test with the boys, yeah, they... You boys are having a lot of fun with the new product. When when you can put smiles on people's faces when they hit new product, you, you know you've got a winner. And you know people get really excited, really giddy about about kind of you know seeing gains and things like that. So um, you know this this is definitely a fun time of year. And I think I think uh, Vosh is, is sneaking up on us with this distance. You know, gaining better launch he didn't get the credit he deserved on that in that match that day he was he was pretty solid that day i think he surprised a few people i'm pretty sure i was 14 for 14 fairways i did not miss the fairway <laughs> <laughs> but he did put in a record as well and i can tell you that there was um there was plenty of time spent on the simulator that week wasn't there chris i I was struggling with my swing the week before, and I literally went, I, I made myself hit like 70 balls a day leading up to it and working on a particular move, and it worked. So <laughs> I love it. Brilliant. Well, Ian, thanks, thanks ever so much for joining us and just giving you a little perspective here and there. And so it won't, won't be any surprises for you when the, when the new drivers turn up. Nick. Um, but again, thank you guys know that. Thanks. That's all. Thank you, boys. And uh, listen, appreciate it. I, I can't wait to get at hand and, uh, and get testing with it. Hopefully we get a chance to do that at the show. Uh, I think the plan is for all of us to be in Orlando. So um, we will uh, we'll be making a stop and, and can't wait to test it in person. Brilliant. Thanks ever so much. Let me know what I can do to help you when you're there too. If we, if we can get together and do something, we'd love to, love to, uh, to do that. We'll definitely do that, boys. Thanks for your time as always. Cool. Really well explained. Thank you.